Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness and your love for us. We thank you for this community of people that you have placed around us. Thank you for so many who have gone before us, on whose shoulders we stand, who engaged in the work of the gospel, who have served, who have loved, who have given. And I thank you especially this morning for Fred Cranky, for his faithfulness to this church family over so many decades. We pray that you would be with the family now as they grieve, as they mourn. May your presence of love be with them. And Father, we ask now that as we together sit before your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you would speak to us, that you would make us attentive to your voice, and that in attending to your voice, that we might be changed and shaped and molded to be your faithful people in this world. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So it's been said that there are two topics that you don't want to broach in polite conversation. And those two topics are politics and religion or religion and politics. Now in church, of course, it's acceptable and even expected that we talk about religion. But I think most of us get uncomfortable when the guy up front starts to talk about politics. And there are many reasons for this. Uh, politics, especially today, is polarizing, it's divisive. And so we get nervous, we think maybe the preacher is gonna try to foist his or her opinion about politics upon the congregation. In a book called Unchristian, uh, that was written a few years back, it, it, this book explores the reason why many people are leaving the church. And it said that one of the most significant reasons for people, for young people leaving the church is this. Uh, this is from the lips of the young people through many studies. They said the church has become too political. And the author who wrote this book commenting on his research writes this. He said, many outsiders believe Christians have a right or even an obligation to pursue political involvement. But they disagree with our methods and attitudes. They say we seem to pursue an agenda that benefits only ourselves. And they assert that we expect too much out of politics. They question whether we are motivated by our own economic status rather than faithful commitments. And they wonder whether Jesus would use political power as we do. And one of the young people who was interviewed put it like this. He said, quote, I believe that many evangelicals have become tools of the Republican election machine at the expense of their own image and message. Now, I don't know what you think about that. Uh, some of you might think that that's not fair, and maybe it isn't. But when you hear politicians talking about their faith, do you ever find yourself getting a little cynical? Maybe they're using their faith in order to appeal to you as a specific voting block. Anyone? story is told of a Democrat and Republican who were eating lunch together, and the Republican mentioned something about his faith to the Democrat, and the Democrat said, oh, well, I'm also very religious. I, I take my faith very seriously. And the Republican who knew him, he looked at him, he said, really? Are you serious? He says, I bet you $10 you can't even recite the Lord's Prayer. And the Democrat responded, oh, yeah, you're on. And then they closed their eyes, and he said, now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And then he said, amen. And the Republican looked at him. He said, wow. He says, here's your $10. I had no idea you knew <laughs> the Lord's prayer. 
But when you hear politicians talking about their faith, do you ever find yourself growing a little bit skeptical or maybe cynical? Maybe they're just using their faith to get your vote. And I'm uncomfortable with preachers who get up from the pulpit and start talking about politics. And yet here I am this morning talking to you about politics. Now, why am I doing that? Well, because if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been in a series walking together through this ancient prophet called Daniel. And we've been looking through this series of prophetic visions and stories surrounding the life of this ancient prophets. And one of the things that almost everybody who, who studies this book, who pour over this book have recognized is that this book is replete with political theology. This book is flooded. Its pages are replete with political theology. Now, if you're new to Christianity, maybe you're new to this term political theology, you said, is that a thing? <laughs> you know, is there such thing as political theology? I mean, what do we even mean by political theology? Isn't that an oxymoron? You know, you're bringing together these two terms that seem to be out of step with each other. Aren't they dealing with different realms? You know, Theology is all about God and the spiritual life, you know, and political. That's all about power exercised in this life. You know, it's pragmatic. It's real world stuff. What's the relationship between politics and theology? Well, according to the Bible, everything. You see, according to scripture, the kingdoms of man are accountable to the kingdom of God. According to the Bible, God and government have everything to do with each other because according to the Bible, God is the author. He is the creator, not just of the spiritual life, not just of the religious life. God is the author of all of life. And as author of all of life, God has something to say about every sphere of human existence. As we said a few weeks back, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Jesus, who is sovereign over all, does not look at and declare mine. But that raises some questions. What does that even mean? What does it mean to say that God has something to say about the political life? What does it mean to say that the kingdom of God is over the kingdoms of man? What are we even talking about? And what does it mean for our own engagement in government and in politics and in the use and exercise of power? And it is these questions that are put to us in the story that we are looking at this morning. You see, this story, it, uh, among all of the, the different stories in Daniel, is really at its heart about political theology. It's really about that relationship between God and government, between the kingdoms of God or the kingdom of God and the politics of man. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of like wade into the waters of this text and kind of explore the claims that it makes to us about the relationship between God and government. So what do you think about that? You guys ready? Should we do that? Some of you want to walk out right now. We locked the doors. You can't. <laughs> but let's begin by making three observations about the dream of the king. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he's ruling over his empire. He has everything under his control and power. But even a king who has everything underneath his sovereign power can't get away from a bad dream. And look at what it says, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace, and I saw a dream that made me afraid. 
Now, what was it that so alarmed the king that made him so afraid? Well, there are three features of this dream that alarmed the king. Number one, let's note the feature of the tree in the dream. So number one, this was a dream about a tree. Look at what it says in verse 10. He says this, the visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great and the tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heavens and it was visible to the end of the whole earth and its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for everyone and the beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh were fed from it. So this was a dream about a tree, but what is so terrifying? What is so nightmare-ish about a tree? Anybody had a dream last night that terrified you about a tree? Any of you ever had a dream that terrified you about a tree? No, I mean, I agree with that old poet, Christina Rossetti. I think that I have never seen a thing as lovely as a tree. You know, its heights are, I can't repeat the rest of the poem, but you know, she said, poems are made by, by things like me, but only God can make a tree. Trees are beautiful, they're lovely. Why are they terrifying this king? Well, listen, in the ancient world, trees were symbolic, they were significant. And it was common in the iconography of the ancient world to have a tree that represented cosmic power that was exercised by the king. And you can see that in this dream. The dream, according to Daniel a little bit later, symbolizes the power of the king. And the tree itself is really a picture of what his kingdom is supposed to do and be. It is supposed to be a place of great provision you know, the, the animals, the birds of the air find food in its branches. And it's supposed to be a place of great protection, especially for the poor and for the marginalized and the powerless, those people who cannot defend or protect themselves. This is what the government of Nebuchadnezzar, this is what human government ought to be and to do. And so the tree is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar and of his kingdom, of his government. And the reason, of course, why it's so terrifying is because the dream doesn't stop with the tree. It moves on to a second feature of the dream. There's the tree, by the way. Isn't that cool? I like it. The second feature of the dream are the watchers. And look at what it says in uh, verse 13. He says, and he continued. He says, I saw in the visions in my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. So here he refers to the watchers. And I don't know about you, but that just kind of sounds like, you know, a mini series on Netflix or something like The Watchers. Like, what, who are The Watchers anyway? The first thing I had in my mind, you know, I'm a Harry Potter fan, so I had Dementors in my mind, you know, the Dementors came. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. According to one commentary, what Daniel is referring to is he's metaphorically talking about the spies of God who are watching the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. They're God's informants. The empire that spies on others is now being spied upon by the regime of God. It's as if in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar is put on notice by God. God says, I see your kingdom. I see how you exercise power. It has not gone below my notice. 
I know what you are doing. I know that on the surface, your kingdom looks beautiful. You know, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon, it was known for its opulence and beauty. Two of the seven wonders of the ancient world were right there in his city, including the hanging gardens of Babylon, which as tradition goes, Nebuchadnezzar made for his median wife who had come from a place and land where it was beautiful and opulent and lush and verdant. And he says, I can do that here. And so he made these gardens in his own palace in Babylon. And this was truly the most beautiful, the most magnificent, the most powerful nation the earth had ever seen. But it's as if God puts Nebuchadnezzar on notice. He says, I can see below the surface of your beautiful city. I can see below it and see the backs, uh, that that beautiful city was built on the backs of slaves. And I can see that what actually has fueled your economic engine are the blood of the wars and, and your military that's gone out. God puts them on notice. He says, I see what is happening. And he says, you will be cut down. He proclaimed aloud and said, chop down the tree and lop off its branches. I just had in my mind that old song by Johnny Cash. You can run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Come on, everyone. Sooner or later, it's going to cut you down. Sooner or later, it's going to cut you down. But he goes on, he says, well, you may throw your rock and hide your hands, working in the dark against your fellow man. But as sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to the light. And what's been done in the dark in Babylon is now brought to the light before the face of the God who sees all and knows all and who has been informed by the watchers. And Nebuchadnezzar, of course, as the story goes on, is cut down. And I love the description of what happened. It is full of poetic justice, verse 28. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And he was looking out at the Babylonian military and its economy and its, uh, its beautiful buildings and architecture. And he is just so overcome by his own greatness and power that he starts tweeting out you know, to everyone, is not this the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for my glory? in my majesty. And while the words were still in his mouth, while the text was still on his fingertips, a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven out from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. It's interesting, in the vision, who are the beasts? The beasts are the subjects in his realm. They are the oppressed. They are those at the margins who he hasn't actually provided shelter and care for. And now Nebuchadnezzar is actually made against his will to work and live in solidarity with the poor and the marginalized, with those who are serving him. He is cast down. There's actually some tradition, some stories surrounding Nebuchadnezzar that he went crazy at one point that he was seeing some weird visions. He lost it for a while before he ultimately came to his senses. And he does come to his senses in our story. 
The good news of God's judgment in this text is it's not final, it is remedial. God acts as judge over Nebuchadnezzar to bring him to his senses so that he might wake up and he might actually serve justice and God's will for creation. And notice, though, we get to the final point of the dream, and it's the point, the whole point of the dream. There it is. Look at that, Nebuchadnezzar. That was William Blake back in like the 19th century. But notice, we should ask, what's the point of this whole dream? And actually, he says in the text that he gives us this dream in order that the living might know something. This dream is not simply given for Nebuchadnezzar. This dream is given for you and me today, here and now. And he says, well, so what, what are we supposed to know from this dream? Well, he says it in verse 17. He says, here's the end, that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. It's interesting, I don't know if you could read this or not, but um, at each key point in the chapter, the same theme is repeated. And so he writes in verse 17, the most high, he wants us all to know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And in case we didn't catch it in verse 25, he repeats the point of the whole thing so that we might know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And in case we didn't catch it the second time, he says it a third time. So that you might know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he wishes. So what's the point of this whole chapter, class? You can't miss it. It is that the most high rules the kingdoms of man and gives it to whom he wills. And so now let's stop and let's just kind of pull back from the text and let's ask the question, what is the claim that this chapter is making, that the story is making, that the dream is making about the relationship between God and government, about the relationship between the kingdom of God and the politics, the exercise of earthly power among men? And I think he's making at least four points in our text. Number one, I think what this text wants us to see and this is clear from the statement, God is the ultimate ruler over human government. The most high rules the kingdom of men. The most high rules the kingdom of men. Now, what is the claim here? What is actually, what actually is he saying? Well, he's saying that God who called all things into being... God, who is the ground of existence, the source of creation, the sustainer of all things, the sustainer of your next breath you take. God, who is the beginning of all things. God, who ultimately is carrying the world along to his end of bringing the world to justice and healing and restoration and beauty and his presence and love flooding all things. This God ultimately is in charge over the kingdoms of man. And that means there is no president, there is no governor, there is no judge, there is no legislator, there is no ruler, there is no power in heaven and on earth, not even the power of death that can stand in the face, that can stop the implementation of God's kingdom in all creation. God rules the world and God will establish his kingdom on earth. The world is not spinning out of control. God is holding all things to, together. God is bringing it to his intended end. And friends, you can take that to the bank. 
You can trust this God. And look, when it seems like the political situation is spinning out of control, when it seems like your life is spinning out of control, there is still a God in heaven who rules over the affairs on earth, and he ultimately has this world in his hands, and he is bringing it to his intended end. So he says, God rules. God is the ultimate ruler over human government. But he's saying something else here. He's not only telling us that God is the ultimate ruler over all human powers. Secondly, he's telling us that God himself is the one who gives power to rule on earth in the first place. And look at what he says. Again, he says this three times. The Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now listen, don't misunderstand what he's claiming here. He is not simply saying that God is up in heaven moving around the chess pieces on the board and that no matter what the American people decide in the next election, ultimately God is going to cast his final boat and God is going to set on, you know, as president, the one who God wills. That's not exactly what he's saying. I, I know sometimes we talk that way, especially if your candidate gets elected and somebody else doesn't like you, you say, hey, this is, God sets him on the throne. Of course, if it's not your candidate, you're like, man, this is the Antichrist. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. We got all kind That's not exactly what he's saying. I think actually here he is making a more profound, a deeper, a more wide-reaching claim than that. I think he's speaking here in general about human power. And I think the claim he is making is that God has willed that human beings exercise power on his behalf on the earth. Jesus standing before Pilate, you remember this? Jesus was standing before him and uh, he's, he's confused because Jesus won't answer him, he won't talk to him and Pilate's like, I have the power. Don't you know that I have the power to take your life or to save it? And Jesus looks him in the eyes and he says, you would have no power unless it were given to you from above. All power that is exercised on earth, all authority to make decisions and to make change and to make stuff happen on earth is delegated power. It's delegated authority from the ultimate source of all rule and all authority. In fact, from the very beginning, this was God's intention for humanity. Psalm 8 puts it like this. It says that God has, he, he says, God has, has, has made us a little bit lower than the angels. This is his voice. This is his word about humanity. He's made us lower than the angels, and he has crowned us with glory and honor. He has made us, as it were, kings and queens in creation. He has given us power to exercise and to use in his world. And he says he has put all things under our feet. Or as it says in the original account of creation, when God, after he creates humanity in his own image, who bear his image in this world, he says this, be fruitful and multiply. It's the best command in the Bible. Be fruitful and multiply. Go out and have babies. And then he says, fill the earth and rule over it. Exercise dominion over it. God says to men and to women, 
He says to different races and nations and people and tongues and even different social statuses and classes that we've cultivated in our world. He says, I make you all my kings and queens in this world. This is my intention for humanity is that you would exercise rule in this world. But it is a delegated authority. It is a donated rule. It's a trust from God. You know, right now, my 17-year-old daughter, Audrey, is learning how to drive. So you, can all, know, you all know how to pray for me now. She's actually, she's doing amazing. She's, she's great. She knows how to drive. She's learned how to drive. Well, one day, soon, very soon, dear Lord, she is going to get her driver's license. And I'm going to hand her the keys. And I'm going to say, hey, take, would you run the kids up to drop them off at dance? Would you run to the store and pick something up? Now, I give her my keys, and I give her my car, and I give her my assignments. And so what I don't expect in that moment for her to take the keys and to take the car and go run people down and to go do whatever she might want to with that car. No, it's a delegation of authority and trust. And this is what God has done in his world. He has created all things to reflect his goodness and love. He created us to bear his image and actually to exercise his rule in the world. And this means that we have real power. You have real power. Sometimes, yes, if you're in government, if you're the president, if you're part of the legislative branch or the judicial branch, then your power is backed up by serious power, by the military, by the police force, you know, and all of that. And so it can make stuff happen. But, you know, we all have little realms of power, places where we exercise rule in our life. You know, if you have little siblings, if you are an older sister or brother, you have power over your siblings, don't you? And if you're a parent, you have power over your children. Your words, your actions have power. And some of you, you know, if you're married, like just a look has power. Amen? But there, there, there's all kinds of realms of power. And sometimes it's from a, a position. Sometimes if you're charismatic or you're skilled, you've got some power that, that's been given to you at your disposal. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar had power. But what God wants Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar to know, it's hard, isn't it? <laughs> like to say that name. What God wants that man to know is what he wants you to know. And that's that God has delegated power to you. It's been a trust from God. It's part of your humanity. It's part of what it means for you to be created in the image of God. You have creative power. Your words have power. Your actions have power. Your positions have power. The government has power. And so God gives us, he, he donates, he delegates this authority to us. But there's a third thing I think we learned from this story. God not only gives power to rule on earth, God actually directs governments, he directs leaders, he directs those with power on how to use their power on earth. And notice the direction that God gives to Nebuchadnezzar through the voice of Daniel. I love this. In verse 27, as it picks up here. So there's the dream. And then after the dream, Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream. And Daniel was a little bit worried to give the interpretation of the dream to the king. He's like, king, may this dream be for your enemies. Because Daniel knows, like, this is, not, this is not good for the king. This is not going to go well for him. And maybe he even thought, this is not going to go well for me. You know, because sometimes people kill the messenger. 
But then after he tells him the dream and the interpretation, he looks the king bold face in the eyes and he says, King, here's what I'd recommend. Repent. And what does that look like? Break off your sins. Which sins? By practicing righteousness and showing kindness and mercy to the oppressed. He says, practice righteousness. He's not simply telling them to be morally upright, though certainly that would have been a concern. Righteousness in the Old Testament is covenant faithfulness. He's telling him, be faithful to your obligations you have to be like that tree that protects and provides for your people. In other words, use your power not for yourself and your self-aggrandizement, for your own ego, for your name, but use your power for the good of your empire. Do righteousness. And then he says, and use your power especially on behalf of those who have no power, on behalf of the oppressed, on behalf of the marginalized. And so here through the voice of Daniel, we get God's direction on the use of human power. Use your power not for self, but use your power to do good, to serve, and to benefit others. This has so many implications, doesn't it? I mean, this should be some impetus for some of you if you're in college or you're graduating college or you're young, you're in school or whatever. This could be an impetus to actually get politically engaged, to actually get engaged in politics, to get engaged in local and city and state and maybe national political life and the judicial branch, the legislative branch, the executive branch, in order to be an agent that uses, that, that leverages the power of those institutions for the good of the human community, for the good of society in ways that actually benefit and serve people. And I know it's common for us, and of, cor- of course it's common for us because it's so obvious. Politicians are, are just corrupt in this respect, aren't they? I mean, a lot of them are. Not all of them, friends. Some of you are looking at me so strangely right now. But so often, political power is simply used for ego. It's used for self. It's used to gain more power and to hold on to power. And of course, there's something so intoxicating about human power. I can remember just walking, I was in a class on political theology, actually, in Washington, D.C., and we went to the White House, and uh, we were walking through the halls, and the guy who was giving us a tour was like an intern in the White House, and he just said, he said, it's so weird, he says, there's something that is so, like you're walking through the halls of power. And he says, there's something intoxicating about that. And so you have to be careful, but it's not cause to withdraw. You neither want to compromise and become like those who exercise power for self-centered gains, nor do you want to uh, withdraw and just pull out from the whole thing altogether. You want to be engaged as a creative minority within the government. And of course, this isn't true for simply the exercise of governmental and political and judicial and legislative or executive power, whatever. This is true for the power in your home and in your place of employment or with your siblings. You have power and your words have power and you know how to use your power. Your look has power. Your skills have power. Your charisma has power. Your coldness has power. Your anger has power. Some of you got some anger issues. 
some power there, right? Like we all get in line when you start getting angry. Use that voice. Use your power to serve. Use your power to do good. You got financial power. You got economic power. Use that power. Leverage it for the sake of especially those who have no power, who have no voice, who are oppressed. This is what God is telling us in this text. Break off your sins. Practice covenant faithfulness and show mercy to the oppressed. So he directs the use of human power. The fourth thing we see in this text is that God holds worldly rulers accountable for how they use their power. Listen, this is sobering, but it's also very good news. At the end of the day, our government officials are not accountable simply to lobbyists or special interest groups or big donors or even to the voting public. At the end of the day, all world rulers, all people who are engaged in exercising power will give an account to God for what they have done with the rule that has been delegated to them in God's world. And that is true for every ruler in the world, and that is true for every person in this room this morning. You will be held accountable before the face of God. I will be held accountable before the face of God for what I do with what has been entrusted in my care. I have a certain amount of power As a preacher, I talk to people. I influence people. I'm also a boss. I manage a staff team, and I've got some influence there. And I've got influence in my family as a husband and as a father. I have influence on my block that I live in. And you do too. And we will answer before the face of God. The watchers are watching. They're not just looking at Nebuchadnezzar. God's eyes are over us all. And we will be held account. What's done in the dark will be brought into the light. And we will give an answer. Now, of course, the good news of the answer that Nebuchadnezzar had to give is that ultimately Nebuchadnezzar was not brought under ultimate judgment. Not here, not now. Nebuchadnezzar was exposed in order that he might be brought to repentance, in order that he might actually get on a different path and his life might change. God's judgment came for the end of restoration. And some of you know that to be true in your own life, right? Hasn't there been a season in your life when you felt like God hit you on the side of the head? Maybe it was with a diagnosis, or maybe it was with a car accident, or maybe it was when they said, you're fired, or whatever. But all of a sudden, God got your attention. He woke you up. Something in your life cut you down and humbled you so that you could look up and so that your sanity might return even as Nebuchadnezzar's sanity returned. So God is the ultimate ruler over all human government. God delegates rule and authority to human agents in this world. He entrusts us with power to rule in this world. And then God directs us on how to use that power. And ultimately, God will hold us accountable for what we do. And that is the message of this chapter. And you know, this this message, it's embodied in 
a counterexample, and it's also embodied in a positive example. The counterexample, of course, is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who doesn't acknowledge God's rule in his life. Nebuchadnezzar actually takes upon himself the role of God. He is the origin of all of his success. He is the end of all of his success. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for my magnificence and my greatness and my glory? And this man who seeks greatness, who feeds ego, who is all about self-aggrandizement, is brought low and who's made nothing and ultimately is made like one of the oxen, like one of the marginalized, oppressed people that he was oppressing. He is brought low. But the counterpoint to Nebuchadnezzar is Jesus. Jesus who though he had all power and glory, Jesus, who although dwelling in the very palace of heaven, left everything so that he might come among us, so that he might actually come among the marginalized and the oppressed and take on flesh and blood of an oppressed, marginalized Jew in Palestine in the first century underneath the thumb of the Roman Empire. And ultimately... He would be humiliated, he would be publicly shamed and mocked and stripped naked and bare by his own volition, by his own choice, willingly lowering himself, humbling himself, laying aside the prerogatives of being the divine image. And he comes into the world so that he might bear in himself all of the violence and all of the evil and all of the wrongs of humanity so that he might take on all of the powers of darkness, not with his own aggressive power and violence, but in a great act of self-sacrificing, self-giving love. And in so doing, he exhausts and brings to an end all of the powers of sin and death and darkness. And it is this one that three days later, God raised from the dead and seated at his right hand in the highest seat of cosmic authority, to say that here is the one that I exalt. It is the humble. It is the meek. It is the lowly. It is not those who use power for self and who use power for ego and boosting and taking advantage and controlling other people and getting their way, but who divest themselves and use their power to serve and to give that God exalts. And of course, this power was not just simply exercised in Jesus as an example for what we ought to do. This was a power that it was exerted on your behalf and for your sake and mine, because truth be told, we have all been failures in this department, haven't we? There's not a person in this room who hasn't on a daily basis used power for self-centered ends to hurt people, to criticize them, to bring them down rather than to lift them up. And it was God's restorative justice in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, bearing, exposing, bearing, laying plain all of the, the foolish use of power in this world on the cross so that he might defeat its power, bring it to an end, so that he might bring to us 
reconciliation and restoration and healing so that by his cross-shaped, self-giving love, like Nebuchadnezzar, we might all return to our sanity and give praise to the God of heaven and earth. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would create in each one of us a humble recognition that you are God and we are not. God, make us deeply and profoundly aware that we exist by your will and that we exist for your glory and that you have delegated authority to us so that we might serve and love our neighbors for your glory and for your honor. God, make us a people that recognizes who you are in our life, that you are God. And may we live for you, and may our life for you come to flesh and blood in practical ways and love for our neighbor. And we ask this, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the true king of heaven and earth, who gave himself willingly and sacrificially so that we might live. Amen.